I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to a new series of Talking France. Hi to all our regular listeners. Thanks for joining us again and a big welcome to anybody tuning in for the first time. Talking France is a podcast produced by the team at the local France and made possible by our members. So thanks to all those listeners who have joined. If you want to understand the big issues in France right now and learn more about the French way of life and the challenges foreign residents like us face living here, then you are listening to the right podcast. This week, we'll look at why French spelling and grammar has become a divisive issue, why France is surprisingly elitist, especially when it comes to its schools and universities, and which part of the country is hoping to host the Winter Olympics in 2030, if we still have winters in 2030, that is. We will also try to understand whether there's any truth to the claim that the French hate spicy food and try to explain why that might be. And finally, a crucial subject for second homeowners and tourists, we'll explain how France enforces the 90-day rule and what the consequences are if you stay too long in the country. I'm Ben McPartland, your host, and joining me once again at our office in Paris is the local France's dynamic duo, or gruesome twosome as I prefer to call them, editor Emma Pearson and journalist Jen Mansfield. Plus, we'll hear more insight from our politics expert, John Litchfield, who will join us from Normandy. Emma and Jen, good to have you back with us again. All okay? Yeah, all good. Thanks. Do you have a nice time? I've been out of the country for a week in Spain, eh, basking in 24 degree heat. What's it like being in France? I've just heard reports of storms after storms after storms. Yeah, north of France got kind of battered by storms, actually. Here in Paris, it was just a bit windy, but in the uh, in the north, it was pretty bad and people like without power for a week. Right. Okay. Yeah, it sounds rough. Some of the pitches are rough, but it's all calmed down now, although it is bitterly cold in Paris today. Although, Jen, you've been away in some cold places, haven't you? Yeah, I've been to cold and rainy Scotland. And you've actually <laughs> come back with a cold. Yep. And I am sick, but um, I don't blame the Scots. <laughs> you were with a, a group of uh, French people, I believe, who didn't they have a go at the, the local food? Yes. Scottish grub? What, what yeah, was going we, on? We tried some haggis and some fish and chips. And after my boyfriend tried the fish and chips, he said it was écœurante, which was like a French word I hadn't heard before. Something to do with a squirrel. Yeah. Well, I was thinking <laughs> that. <laughs> Écurant, what does that mean? Apparently, well, at the time he said, oh, it just means that it's kind of heavy. The food sits in your stomach kind of heavy. He said it was it, it was bon, but écurant. And I Googled it afterwards and it turns out it means nauseating. Oh, wow. That's pretty <laughs> so, insulting. It's a bit insulting. It can be heavy fish and chips. We'll have much more food talk later in the podcast, more about France. Let's crack on, guys. There's plenty to talk about this week. A French senator has introduced a bill all about spelling and grammar, specifically trying to ban a certain type of written French called inclusive writing. Now, this bill would need to be passed in the Assemblée Nationale if it was to become law, and there seems little chance of that happening. Emma, before we get into why spelling is a matter for senators, let's explain to listeners what this inclusive writing is. 
Well, it's basically a way of trying to introduce gender balance into the language, which is more complicated in French than it is in English, because of course French is a gendered language. So in English, you can create gender neutral words for job titles, for example. You might say firefighter instead of fireman, head teacher instead of headmaster. But in French, it's more difficult because every noun must have a gender, and then you make the adjectives agree with the noun, as you will recall. So my job title is rédactrice en chef. But Ben, if you took over from me, you would become rédacteur en chef because you're a boy. A man, uh, please. Uh, yeah, sure. And if you're talking about either a big group or you don't know the gender of the person you're referring to, it's grammatically correct to use the masculine. So 80,000 spectators up at Stade de France, they would be, if they were women, they would be spectatrice. But if you add in one single man to that crowd, they all become spectateur. I mean, when you put it like that, Emma, it just sounds bonkers, uh, especially in this day and age. It just feels really old fashioned. Surely there's been some kind of suggestions, campaigns in France to change this. Yeah, I mean, there's been moves for some years now to try and create more gender inclusive language, including feminised job titles like mine. And also the introduction of a gender neutral pronoun, which is il, uh, that combines il he and L, her. But when you're sort of talking more generally, there are basically two ways to do it. The first is just to use both terms. And it's pretty standard now for politicians, for example, to address les Français et les Françaises. So French men and French women. You hear that a lot. Or perhaps uh, Parisien, Parisienne. So male and female residents of Paris. The other way is used in written French only. And it includes either a dot called the médian point or sometimes a forward slash or a bracket to just add the feminine ending after the masculine word. This, this is inclusive, right? This is inclusive. It's what writing. you see with all the dots and the endings and dots and endings. Exactly, right. yeah. It's basically a way of trying to use both the masculine and feminine version of the words without your sentence ending up incredibly long. It looks hard on the eye, though, when you see this. Yeah, I mean, this text. is the thing that people say that they don't like about it, that it's ugly or it's confusing. And it does sound like quite a sort of a technical or a grammatical issue, but it does seem to be developing into a political issue as well. So when you'll see inclusive writing used, it's almost exclusively used by people who are on the political left. Right-wingers don't like it. Some of them hate it, including this senator who has introduced this bill to ban it. Yeah, let's bring in our French politics expert, John Litchfield, now, who's written a column on the issue of inclusive writing, which is available on our website at thelocal.fr. Hi, John. Thanks for joining us again. Tell us about your view on inclusive writing, John, and why it's caused such a row in France. I think, you know, it goes way back to, I think, the 16th century that the French language was first formalised by, by edict of of the king at that point. And then in the 17th century, um, Richelieu created the, the Académie Française to protect the language which has been there ever since, it has no formal legal status. It's still regarded as a kind of as the judge of, of what is right and what is wrong in French. And French has been a more rigid language, a more unchanging language than English for that reason. Over the years, if you read French from the 17th century, it's not so different from French now, whereas 17th century English, although still readable to us, is quite different. So I think French is also used as a way of sort of imposing Frenchness on the different regional languages and, and communities in France as well. It's always been seen as something that holds the country together or is imposed from the centre to hold the country together. So it has also always, and then there's always, as you say, recently been laws to try and prevent English from taking over certain aspects of the French language or the words pouring into French from English has not been particularly successful, as you know. So yeah, it's always been a very sensitive 
specific issue to the French. And I think the fact that French was once one of the dominant languages in the world and is still pretty uh, much used in the world, it's one of the most used languages in the world, but it is under threat, not just from English these days, from Spanish also, is one of the re- reasons why all questions of French language are sensitive. Thanks, John. Emma, John mentioned the words culture war there. It feels France has largely been spared from these kind of culture wars that we've seen flare up in the UK or the US. Are they less of a thing in France? I think probably yes. Um, They are less of a thing in France. There are political disputes and political disagreements all the time, of course, but the kind of culture war discourse that we see in the US is perhaps less common in France, although it does exist. But issues like abortion or trans rights that have become real hot button issues in the US just don't really cause that same level of disagreement in France. And I think it's quite telling that France even uses an English import word, le wokisme, to refer to anything that's regarded as woke. And when we look at the presidential election last year, for example, there was really only one candidate, um, the extreme right TV pundit turned politician Eric Zemmour, who included culture war type issues in his campaign and he didn't do very well. The rest of the candidates really stuck to much more traditional issues, you know, the economy, the cost of living, public services. Mm. Yeah, you don't see many people in France going berserk about pronouns, but there is one area where the country seems to become slightly hysterical, and that's anything to do with Islam and secularism, perhaps. This week, we had several government ministers weighing in after a photo of a small group of Muslim travellers praying in the departure lounge of Charles de Gaulle Airport ahead of a flight to Jordan was posted online. One former French politician sarcastically tweeted asking authorities if they had turned the airport into a mosque. This prompted ministers to demand, quote, firmness to stop this kind of scene happening, Emma. Yeah, I mean, I think this is the area where we do see the kind of discourse that could be termed a culture war. And by that, I mean, not just something that's a political argument, but something that touches on a sense of national identity or how a country feels about itself. And also an issue where people don't actually want a a debate about it. They just want a conflict. But I mean, at the heart of this, there is a, a genuine and very serious law. France is a secular country and the law mandates that religion plays no part in public life. So, yes, it is true that praying in public spaces within public transport is not allowed. For example, if you read the rules of the Paris Metro, you technically wouldn't be allowed to say a prayer on a platform, although... I must say, I've never heard of anyone being ticketed for that. The airport at Charles de Gaulle has multi-faith prayer rooms, so the travellers should have been praying there and not in the departure lounge. But, you know, airports have a lot of rules. And I think if, for example, somebody was photographed smoking in the departure lounge, which clearly is also not allowed, or even leading Christian prayers in the departure lounge, I don't think there would have been the level of response that those Jordan passengers got. I think it's this combination of the sort of secularism laws plus a bit of culture war type behaviour that really leads to some of these French political rows that outsiders do find very bizarre. Mm, Yeah, like the regular burkini or hijab rows we see flare up in France, it seems like almost every summer some version of the same argument erupts over Muslim women wearing the full body swimsuit known as the bikini. Various local mayors have attempted to ban them on beaches. Those attempts have always been ruled unconstitutional, but they remain banned in municipal pools. That's not to mention regular hysteria regarding the hijab, Emma. Yeah, I mean, these kind of rows, they happen all the time and people do go really quite crazy about them. Um, You might remember the sportswear brand Decathlon, your favourite place in France. That found itself at the centre of a massive social media storm uh, when it put on sale a hijab that was designed for runners. Even though going for a run wearing a hijab in no way contravenes secularism laws and as a private business, Decathlon wouldn't be covered by them anyway. So it kind 
kind of made no sense. But I think my favourite of these mad rows is from 2020, when the Interior Minister Gerard Darmanin said, and I quote, It has always shocked me to go into a supermarket and to see that, when entering, there will be one type of ethnic food selection here and another one next to it. And honestly, I think about that bit of nonsense every time I buy soy sauce in my local supermarket. But although these things kind of ostensibly make no sense and they seem like very trivial issues, you know, sports kits for women, how supermarkets arrange their shelves, I think they do start to make a little more sense when you see them as France's version of a culture war. Mm, Indeed. Thanks, Emma. Really interesting stuff. Let's move on. This week, France's education minister, Gabriel Attal, gave an interview in which he said he'd been bullied at school and his bully had continued to harass him in adult life, including writing a book in which he alleged that Attal's high-flying government career was all down to his partner, who is a close political ally of President Emmanuel Macron. Emma, you're here to explain what exactly is going on here and why this leads us to the big subject of elitism in France. Um, Yeah, I'm not sure I can quite explain what is going on here because it really is quite bizarre. Atal did not name his alleged school bully, but it's very widely understood that he was talking about a guy named Juan Branco, who is one of France's most high-profile lawyers and also a sort of political activist. Juan Branco has written a lot about Gabriel Atal. He's actually written 15 books, one of which, uh, Crepescule, did make that allegation about Gabriel Atal's career that you mentioned. Now, honestly, I'm not getting into the ins and outs of this because it's really quite hard to know what is going on. Branco has denied that he's a bully, although clearly the two do not like each other. But the thing that I found interesting about this is how many of France's high-profile figures and political leaders like these two went to school together. I mean... France is a big country. There's a population of 67 million people, but there is a surprising number of high-profile figures who all went to the same school, the same lycée or the same university, which, yes, does happen in the UK and the US too, but, I mean, France is supposed to be the home of égalité. So Atal and this guy, Juan Branco, it's a great name. Sounds like a wrestler, no? A lawyer. <laughs> He's Franco-Spanish, which is right, where the okay, name comes from. That, that explains it. They went to the École Alsacienne, or the Alsatian School in Paris. That's nothing to do with dogs, though, is it? <laughs> no, nothing to do with Alsatian dogs. Um, it references Alsace, the place in eastern France. The school itself, as you said, is in central Paris, in the 6th arrondissement, but it was founded in 1874 by people who had fled Alsace after its annexation by Germany, hence the name. These days, it's, kind of, it's known for high quality quality education with a special focus on languages, but it's also known for being a school for future high flyers. I had a look and 95 of its former pupils have their own Wikipedia page and actually three of Emmanuel Macron's ministers are former pupils there. It is a private school, but the fees are about €3,000 a year. So it's not like crazy out of reach of ordinary people, but it is in one of the most expensive arrondissements in Paris and it is selective. So there are exams to get into it. Mm, Now, this is not, of course, the only elite school in Paris, is it? No. When you start looking at the bios of sort of high profile French figures, you'll see a couple of schools that just crop up again and again. And all of them are based in Paris, which, of course, is its own form of elitism. The Lycée Henri IV and the Lycée Louis Le Grand, both old, both named after French kings. Um, I think those are probably the best known that crop up all the time. They're both public schools, so there are no fees to pay, but they are academically selective. And Mm. again, both of them are in expensive areas of Paris. They offer, you know, a standard lycée education with the baccalaureate at the end, just like other French high schools. But they also run these courses which are known as prépa, which are designed to coach students for the entrance exam to the Grande École, which are the most prestigious French universities. Ah, the Grande École. I'm glad you brought that up. 
Uh, I keep hearing this a lot. What are they? What are we talking about with these grand, these big schools? Um, yeah, great question. And actually, I had to do a bit of research for this podcast because I hear it all the time and didn't really know what they were either. I found out that there's not actually a formal definition of the Grand École, mm. so maybe we're not just being dumb here. But they are universities. They're kind of the best known, most prestigious universities in France. So they're a bit like Ivy League in, uh, mm, in the US. Okay. They're almost all based in Paris. Uh, they include schools like Sciences Po that you probably heard of. Know Ecole, that one, yeah. Yep, Ecole Normale Supérieure, those kind of ones. They mostly focus on postgraduate courses. So some students go after getting an undergraduate degree, but some of the students just study for five years at a Grande École and they just get a master's degree without getting an undergrad degree first. They are pretty selective, but if you manage to get in, having a Grande École on your CV is widely regarded as opening doors into all sorts of professions. And actually all of the French presidents since 1958 are Grande École graduates. In order to get in, you also need to take extra exams known as concours. And most of the students do these special courses that I just talked about called prépa, which are specifically aimed at coaching for that entrance exam. Uh, and yeah, and these grande calls, obviously you pay uh, fees to go to them, unlike uh, most French universities. You mentioned a couple of the call Emma. One that's always mentioned when we talk about elitism in France is ENA, E-N-A. In fact, Emmanuel Macron said he was going to ban it because it was too elitist, despite having gone there himself. What's happening with ENA? Yes, this is the École Nationale d'Administration, popularly known as ENA, and graduates of it are known as ENAC. And it's not based in Paris, is it? Uh, no, no, it's actually in Strasbourg. It's it was in Paris, but it moved to right. moved to Strasbourg. And if you look at the bio of almost any member of the government, you will find they are graduates of ENA. But that's kind of not super surprising because its entire curriculum is based around preparing students for public administration, government, basically. The students who graduate in the top 15 of their year group from ENA are given the choice of either joining the Treasury, the Conseil d'État, or the Conseil Constitutionnel, which are the sort of high-level institutions in France, while the others often join the civil service, which is a very traditional route into French politics. It is postgraduate school as well. Some students go there straight after university, but around a third go as mature students, usually after sort of starting to build a career in the civil service, business or politics. It is ferociously competitive to get in since it's regarded as this kind of golden ticket to the top. Students have to take part in both written and oral exams on law, economics, public finances and public administration. And only about 10% of the people who apply are accepted. And actually, one of the oral exams is conducted in English. So if you're meeting someone and you're not really sure if they speak English or not, and you happen to spot in their bio that they're an ENAC, you know that they do. Indeed. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Emmanuel Macron went there, but he had a plan to abolish it. Did that go through? Yes, it's quite ironic, really, because ENAC was actually founded in 1945 in order to halt elitism. The idea was that sort of gaining politics in high office shouldn't be based on coming from the right background or having family connections, but it should be based on academic tests like the test to get into this school. So it was academically elite, but not socially elite. And initially this seemed to work. You know, students came from all walks of life. There was a high degree of social mobility. But by 2000, only 6% of its students came from working class backgrounds. And in recent decades, it's really been seen as a sort of old boys network. And I do mean boys there because only around a third of its intake are women. Macron announced that he was scrapping it in response to the Yellow Vest protests. I should say this wasn't really like the main focus of the Yellow Vest campaign, but it was kind of a symbol of how ordinary people felt shut out of politics by this closed shop elite of good old boys who'd all gone to the same school. Mm. So ENA did close in 2021, but at the same time, an institution called the Institut National de Service Public was opened 
it's also based in Strasbourg. It also has a focus on government and public administration. So I think if I was a cynical person, I'd say it's the same thing with a different name. Don't be so cynical, Emma. Let's bring in John Litchfield again here. John, elitism might not be a word people associate with France, but is France perhaps even more elite than other countries? I'd say it's probably worse than France in the sense. I mean, if you look at Britain, there seems to have been a kind of whole run of, of Tory prime ministers who've all been eaten, Oxford and so on over the years. But I think overall, if you look at where British politicians come from across all the political boundaries, that's not so narrow a neck of uh, entry to power uh, as all that. The US is, is very mixed. You know, I think it's a long, long ago that since the sort of Ivy League colleges dominated the, the top levels of American politics, that's not been true now for many years. But in France until recently, I mean, even now, if you look, you know, of all recent presidents, the only one that wasn't at the Ecole Nationale d'Administration, the, uh, the sort of elite um, finishing school for the French bureaucracy and, and politicians. And uh, I think all recent presidents were in it, except one, one great exception was Sarkozy, who couldn't get in because English wasn't good enough, so he went off to be a lawyer instead and ended up being a very successful politician anyway. But Chirac was at Ena, Hollande was at Ena, Macron certainly at Ena, and if you look at the present government, uh, Elizabeth Bourne was at Polytechnique, which is the other great prestigious engineering school. Uh, I think the finance minister, Bruno Le Maire, was at Ena, so was Edward Philippe, who may well be the next president, I think, from the centre ground of French politics. But it is changing, I think, Ben. I mean, you know, Ana has now been abolished, although people say it's just been replaced by another Ana by Macron himself, a sort of uh, alumnus of Ana decided that it was too dominant in, in the French political and business world, and it was time to reform it and, and rename it, and it's now been given the new title of Ecole Normale de Service Public, I think, or Ecole Nationale de Service Public, whether it will sort of under that new name dominate as it has in the past, I'm not sure. I don't think it is as, it isn't the holy grail for clever young French men and women that it used to be, I'm told. But many of those now prefer to go straight into the big French business schools and make money rather than go through the political world, because it used to be to be a big wheel in French business, you had also to go through ANA. That's no longer the case. So I think in a way, this is breaking down, but it's still certainly the case that this generation, maybe the last generation of politicians, tends to have been to those uh, big political finishing schools like Sciences Po and ENA. And many of them, if they were Paris-based, came through the same two or three big lycées in Paris. That's not true of Macron, who, but it's partly true of Macron because he was in a lycée in Amiens but was sent away from there when he started as we know, having an affair with his uh, theatre teacher, who later became his wife, and he was sent to one of the big, I think he was sent to Henri IV, one of the big elite grammar schools in uh, lycées in, in Paris. So, yeah, I think it's true that there has been a kind of domination of these sort of elite uh, educational institutions of the French political system, which may now be changing. Thanks, John, and thanks to Emma. Let's move on. Let's talk about the Olympics. Now, not the ones that are coming up in Paris next summer, but the Winter Olympics, because France could also host the Winter Games in the near future, Jen. Yeah, so France has put its hat in the ring to host another Olympic Games, like you just said. This time, they're applying to host the 2030 Winter Games. And even though France is one of the last countries to bid for the spot, French politicians do think they've got a pretty decent chance of winning. 
So, so far, Switzerland, Sweden, and Salt Lake City in the U.S. have all submitted their applications to host the games. And then we're going to find out which country gets picked uh, for both the 2030 and the 2034 games sometime in July 2024. Okay, so France, as I mentioned, is already hosting the Summer Games. Does it have any chance of winning the bid to host the Winter ones too? Well, France has a bit of an advantage because the country already has a lot of the infrastructure that would be needed. Plus, this wouldn't be their first time. France has already hosted the Winter Games three times at Chamonix in 1924, Grenoble in 1968, and Albertville in 1992. The idea is that this time Nice would host the Olympic Village as well as indoor skating, uh, which means they'd have to build a nice rink. And then just a short drive away, three resorts in the Southern Alps would host different events. So Maribel Courchevel would host the Alpine skiing events. Isola 2000 would host the snowboard competitions and the Grand Bernard Resort will host the Nordic events. Part of the goal would be to have a sustainable Olympics and to really try to rely on some of those old facilities that were built for previous events. So, for example, the La Plagne Slope, which was originally built for the Albertville Games in 1992, and that would host bobsleigh, luge and skeleton events. All right. That all sounds great, Jen. But uh, 2023 is currently the warmest year ever on record. It looks likely to be. So what about the snow? We've talked about this a few times on the podcast. French ski resorts have been closing down because of a lack of snow and warming temperatures. What's the outlook? Yeah, I mean, this is a fair concern. Last winter, when we had a warm spell in December and January, there was a point when only 45% of the ski slopes in France were open. And with climate change, you're right, this is likely going to get worse. For the most part, resorts closing down have been below 2,000 meters in elevation, and they've largely been in the Northern Alps or other smaller mountain ranges in France. But according to projections from Météo France, by 2050, the availability of snow cover in mid-mountain areas will be reduced by 10 to 40 percent of the current thickness due to the climate crisis. But as for the Maribel Resort, at its highest elevation, it's at 2,962 meters. So we can be hopeful that a good chunk of that area will be covered in enough snow for the events. Okay, Okay, fingers crossed it'd be exciting if France wins another Olympic Games. Now, a straightforward question for our next subject. Do the French really hate spicy food? I've got my own views and experience of this, Emma. Let's hear from you first. Um, Yeah, I think it is fair to say that France is not really a spice culture. Um, And yes, this is probably one of the most commonly asked questions from foreigners in France is where to get good food that has a bit of a kick to it. French cuisine itself leans much more towards garlic, herb and salt for flavouring. Although if you go down to the Basque country in the southwest, you will get some spicy dishes with the area's special piment d'espelette. And there is Dijon mustard, which is also pretty strong, but otherwise... No, not really. The Frenchies that I know, they all seem to have quite delicate palates and really don't like hot, spicy food. And quite a lot of the sort of Indian, Chinese or Thai restaurants in France seem to tone down their spicing, probably, for French sensibilities. Yeah, they take it out altogether. Uh, Look, I'd go along with that. I think I know one French person who loves spicy food. All the others can't bear it and reject the idea there is anything nice about a fiery dish. Do we know? Do we have any explanation for this? Well, I think it's two things, really. Um, Firstly, France has its own established cuisine and it's very proud of it. So they perhaps feel less of a need to embrace foreign food. I don't know, the the old joke about the British Empire is that the Brits went halfway around the world looking for a decent meal, whereas maybe the French don't Mm. feel that need. Yeah, when you've got Um, tripe and croque monsieur, why would you need spicy food? (laughs) Some tripe can be quite nice. Carry on, Emma. (laughs) But I think also it is just down to a lack of exposure to spice, which comes down to France's history. So 
in the UK, for example, there's lots of Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi restaurants, which are run by immigrants from those countries, which are former British colonies. France also has plenty of immigrants from its former colonies, but like most of those countries don't really have much of a culture of spicy food. So, you know, you can find plenty of couscous and cuisine from the Maghreb, for example, or Vietnamese restaurants, but they don't serve particularly hot food. So the French have just not been used to this. This is changing in the big French cities, especially Paris. You'll find a really rapidly increasing international foodie scene with some really great places for spice. But if you're in a smaller town, you might struggle to find spicy food. And even if you do find an Indian restaurant, you know, you might have to tell them to up their spice levels. One of our readers told us that she'd seen an Indian restaurant in Set down in the southwest mm. that advertised none of our curries contain chilli, which is slightly that missing curry? the point there, guys. Yeah, you do hear about that a lot. I mean, look, I love spices and I've taken to carrying my own like little jar of cayenne peppers around to kind of chop up and drop or cayenne powder to drop in in like uh, Thai food or whatever to make sure it's spiced up or you really have to ask them to spice it up. One reader did mention actually the you know the French islands in the Caribbean have quite a bit of spicy food. Yeah, definitely. I mean, just because of where they are, they exactly, have more of yeah. an exposure to uh, to spice so much in uh, Guadeloupe, Réunion, whatever, they have exactly, spice yeah. there. And you, did, you can find chili, you know, chilies in Paris, you know, the primeur, you know, the veg and fruit stalls. I get bird's eye chilies that are really quite fiery there, Jen. Yeah, I would say that your best chance is to go to like Asian food markets if you're looking for a specific spice. Um, so, for example, uh, if I'm looking for something with red chili flakes, I might go to an Asian market. Um, I would say that you'll find spices at traditional French grocery stores, but you'll probably have a better chance going to a more specialized place. I do think that if you live near a big intermarché, sometimes their international section can be hit or miss. So I've been pleasantly surprised. I've also been disappointed. Um, otherwise, personally, I bring spices back from the U.S. I find that chili powder is not widely available here. As for visiting Paris, I have to say that the Mexican and the Latin American food here leaves a lot to be desired. My personal advice is to look on the menu and make sure that they serve it with black beans. And that's an indicator as to whether or not it's going to be authentic. But I really love the taco stand El Nopal. It's right by our office along the canal. And their spicy sauce is actually spicy. Mm, I've taken, I don't know what you guys think when you go to kind of rural France, I've taken to taking my own box of of bird's eye chilli peppers. Emma, can you get chilies down in Charente? Uh, well, actually, um, you can grow them because the, the good uh-huh. thing about the French climate is it's good for this growing chilies. And actually, Paris too, I have a chilli plant on my balcony which produces good chilies. That's the way to do it, I think. But also, I think maybe what I've learned to do is just embrace couscous. Obviously, it's not the same um, and it's not hugely spicy, although the harissa is good. But I think emotionally, the kind of the couscouserie occupies the same place in France that the High Street Curry House does in the UK in that, you know, they're everywhere. Pretty much every town has them. The food is delicious, but it's quite cheap. When I get to like the end of the week, it's Friday, I'm tired, I can't be bothered to cook, but I don't want to go out somewhere expensive and send a load, spend a load of money. We always end up saying, oh, let's just go around the corner for couscous. Have you gone to a, a nightclub and come out like steaming drunk and gone for a couscous at three in the morning though? No, is that I think that, that is the... That is the difference. That's a very British. But, but also, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm 43. You I don't do much nightclubs yeah. anymore. But, <laughs> yeah. but I mean, it's not just me who loves couscous. The French love couscous. And in fact, they have an annual poll called Le Plat Préféré mm. des Français, which like people vote on their favourite food. And couscous has won multiple times over the last decade. So my top tip is just mm. learn to love couscous. Really interesting. And for those uh, Brits, perhaps, who are looking for good British kind of style curry houses. We've got an article on our site. Have we not? Readers have recommended a few around France. Yeah, exactly. They're in places that there is a big British community that you can find sort of more Brit style curry houses mm. with, you know, pints of Kingfisher Lager, red exactly. flock wallpaper. But yes, that's on the local site right now. And Jen, we've had an American reader requesting we do the same for Mexican restaurants. So that's the next project Ooh, for you. Yeah, I'm down. 
All right, let's move on to a slightly more serious question now regarding that pesky 90-day rule. To briefly recap, the 90-day rule is an EU rule that restricts non-EU nationals to 90 days in every 180 in the Schengen area. Anyone who wants to stay longer needs either a visa or a residency card. The visa-free 90 days are not available to everyone. Citizens of some countries, including India, need a visa to visit the EU for any length of time, even a one-week holiday. But nationalities, including Brits, Americans, Australians, New Zealanders, benefit from the 90-day allowance. So do French border guards really check, Emma? And what happens if you overstay? Well, pre-Brexit, France had actually earned itself a reputation for being one of the more relaxed countries about the rule. The rule itself is an EU one, but it's up to the individual countries how they enforce it. And there are a range of penalties that you can give. So you do get countries that are stricter than others. And prior to Brexit, France didn't really seem that bothered about people who just overstayed for a few days or even a few weeks, as long as they weren't working or claiming benefits in France. Since Brexit, I think we have seen a change and there is a lot more focus on it at the border. And I think that's just to do with the nature of travel between France and the UK. I mean, firstly, there's a much greater volume of traffic between France and the UK than there is between France and the US or France and Australia, for example. And secondly, I think it's to do with the way people travel, that Brits, especially second homeowners, are much more likely to make multiple trips in a year just for reasons of, you know, being close, it's cheaper. So you've got people who are coming and going a lot. And it is now standard practice, yes, for border guards to check the entry and exit stamps in your passport to see if you've overstayed your 90 days. Sometimes people will say they just get a stern telling off from the border guard, but more usually you will be issued with a fine and you can be barred from returning to the EU. This ban can be anything up to 90 days, right up to 10 years, but for overstayers of the 90-day rule, it would more usually be a 90-day ban. And if you have this overstayer stamp put in your passport, it's also quite likely to cause problems when you travel anywhere within the within the block. It can also make it difficult for you to get a visa or a residency card. So yeah, it can create problems for you. So like you say, residents like us, Emma, we're not really we're not affected by this at all. But you know, one um worried reader got in touch to say I think he had been warned by the border guard that put a note on his file. We don't quite know what that means. But I think it turns out that one of the border guards just didn't find one of his exit stamps on one of the pages. It's all kind of manual checking. Are there some changes coming up in both in how the 90-day rule is enforced and the kind of potential end of paperwork-free travel in the EU? Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, this is the EU's new EES and ETS systems that are coming in. The very short version of this, and there is an article on the website which goes into it in much more detail, but the short version is that EES will do away with these manual passport stamps and introduce a digital scan of passports when you enter and leave the, the block. So this will make it much harder to overstay because you're being scanned every time, but it should solve problems like the ones you mentioned with like border guards either misreading stamps or missing stamps and telling people they've overstayed when they haven't. ETIAS, which comes in later, that means that people coming to France under the 90-day rule will have to fill in an online form in advance and pay a €7 Euro fee, although there is an exemption if you're under 18 or over 70. It's similar to filling out the ESTA visa waiver if you've travelled to the US, if you've ever done that, but it is kind of the end of paperwork-free travel mm. for people coming under the 90-day rule. Now, both of these have been due to come in and been delayed several times. So this might change again. But at the moment, the start dates are autumn or winter 2024 for EES. Yeah. And then the first half of 2025 for ETS. But like I say, this could change again. Yeah, still a long way in the future. There is loads more on EES and ETS for any listeners who are interested in finding out more on our website at thelocal.fr. Emma, Jen, John, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thanks for all your essential info. Uh, and thanks to everybody for listening. We'll be back with more next week. <laughs>